Welcome back to Building Optimal Radio. My name is Jared Gossett, and today we're going to do it. Today, we are going to roll up our sleeves and jump into the mind-numbingly boring yet immensely important world of tax accounting. Our guest is Sherry Allshaus. She is a CPA with her husband, Kurt, out of Houston, Texas. And I actually came to know Sherry and Kurt last year. I attended a workshop that was taught by Sherry and Kurt. And one thing that jumped out of me from the beginning, you know how sometimes whenever everybody is saying one thing, and then you've got this lone voice who is saying something different, that usually means that that person is either brilliant or insane. That's exactly what Sherry was doing, saying things that I had never heard. And I've talked to dozens of CPAs over my career in this business. I'd never heard some of the things that Sherry had said. Fortunately for us, Sherry is brilliant. And I'm very excited to share her wisdom with you guys. We get into some stuff that is very timely, especially given the tax overhauls that have recently happened and also the fact that this is tax season. It's very important for some of you who are listening and not from the U.S. I apologize. This episode may not be as relevant for you all, but there's a good chance that there may be some pearls of wisdom for everybody in this episode. This is a long one, so I warn you in advance, but there is a bunch of ground that we have to cover. One final word. If you have not done so already, be sure to go to our webpage, buildingoptimal.com. Sign up there so that you get our latest updates, notifications of our newest episodes. You can also subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast player you use. Go on to Facebook and Instagram. You can follow us there to get a few little tips and tricks that we like to trickle out throughout the week. And also, again, notifications on new episodes. With that said, enjoy. Sherry, as a CPA to somebody who specializes in home builders, you guys see, I'm sure, a common theme and a common thread of frequently asked questions more so than others. Can we launch into a little bit of a discussion about some of those most commonly asked questions and what your answers to those may be? Absolutely, Jared. Uh, well, I will <laughs> tell you straight off the bat, most of the questions that ask, my answer starts out with, it depends. And I know that's what everybody hates to hear, but that's what a tax accountant knows is it depends. So, one of the main questions that I get all the time is entity structure. What should I be? And that is not a very quick question. It's actually a conversation that we always have with our clients because we want to see where they're going. But let's kind of talk about the main. And everybody throws around, well, I'm an LLC. But unfortunately, for federal tax purposes, there is no animal like that. We only have certain selections that we can use, and that is the corporation, the partnership, or the sole proprietor. So it has to fit in one of those groupings. It's kind of like, well, what does that mean to me as a builder? Well, again, I get back to, to this is, first of all, 
how many are members of this LLC or of the company or of the partnership. If there's more than one, well, then we're stuck with either having a corporation or a partnership. Now, within the corporation rules, everybody goes, oh, well, I've heard of this S-corp. And the S-corp is that pass-through entity, so only get taxed at one time. And then we have the C-corp, which is our regular corporation, pays its own taxes. Now, it used to be that before the new law changed that the C-corp, you know, nobody really wanted it. They'd take the pass-through uh, so that they would not have that double taxation. And what does double taxation look like? Well, the C-Corp would pay its tax. Its tax rate under the old law was 34%. Well, that's still below my highest rate as an individual under the old law, which really was sitting at 39.6%. But you got to hold on for a second. I get that tax inside the business. Well, now I get to distribute the profits out of that business. Well, now it gets taxed again. And it gets taxed again if if I'm at the highest rate at the 39.6%. So, you know, that's the difficulties with the C-Corp and why most everybody stayed away and went straight to the S-Corps and then also looked at the partnerships. But then I also say, well, if I'm sitting in a partnership in an active trader business, which is what a builder is, all of that is subject to social security tax. So that's a about a 13% hit until you get past the actual top rate for Social Security, which is about 128K now. And then after that, you go to a 2.9%. And really, once tax effective, just say a 2% additional hit. So partnerships don't look too good for a builder that's making good money. So you really get to an S corporation. But you can see we're just, we're kind of roaming around this whole thing. There's so many other things to think about. Because if I have a partner, what does that partner look like to me? Because once I'm in an S corporation, I mean, it is like marriage. I mean, you are stuck with it in certain respects. And that means that distributions have to be exactly the same. So if you have this marriage, this 50-50 partnership, I've got to make distributions in that same ratio. Even though I may be a partner or a shareholder that two years, three years down the line isn't really contributing like we thought I was going to contribute. And you want to reduce that. Well, you can't just reduce their distribution. It has to stay at 50-50. A partnerships allows you that flexibility where you can reduce distributions. You can make special allocations. So again, it is one of those areas that you've got to sit down and talk to your partners, well, and if it's just you, kind of make a decision, what do I look like? Where am I going? Again, I can't give a recommendation of, is it partnership? Is it an S-corp? Or do I do a C-corp? So it's kind of an interesting concept of what is the entity? And that, like I said, that's huge tax planning that we do. But I will say, what is the norm that I see? For small builders, I usually see an S-corp. Even for my mid-sized builders that have been around and with a partner, they usually will end up in an S-corp. The ones that will sit in partnerships is you have people coming in and out. Uh, You've set it up to where you've had key employees that you want to participate. Then you'll see more of the partnership that will allow this in and out movement within that partnership. 
So that's kind of how the structure is a norm that you see. But I would say, you know, for most part, an S-corp works very well. A second question I get a lot of is autos. Well, should my company buy the auto or should I have own it personally? And again, that one is not really, I always get back to not a straight up tax question. That's a, also a business decision because there's other things to consider when buying an auto inside or outside the entity. If it's inside the entity, I will tell you this, us sitting in Texas, there is a property tax. And Jared, you probably know this, property taxes aren't cheap. No, they're not. <laughs> so you actually do get taxed every year on the value of that automobile. So now I'm having to pay an annual tax on having it inside. Not only that, commercial auto insurance, when you go inside a business, is more expensive too. But then I always tell my clients, say, even if you have the car outside the business, you better be talking to your insurance agent to make sure that you're adequately covered for that auto because you guys are driving all over the job sites all over town. If you have a wreck with your personal vehicle while on business, is your insurance going to cover you? So I always say you need to have a conversation that's that team concept with your insurance guy to talk to him. So now let's go to one step. I haven't even talked about tax yet. The next thing, let's talk a little bit. I have to now, to be able to take the deduction, track my mileage. No matter whether I buy it in the business, have it out personally, I've got to track my business mileage. And what does business mileage look like? Well, it's not commuting from your house to your office. You can't deduct that. It's actually going from your office and driving around to the different job sites. That is going to be your business mileage. And you compare that to your overall and you get a percentage. So if you look at, you have two options, actual cost or cents per mile. And if you've used the cents per mile, I want to say it's at 53 and a half, some, it might have gone to 54 cents a mile, and you multiply that by your business, you can get reimbursed for that. If you're doing actual expense, that becomes a really unique item too, is that the first year that you buy the automobile, and you get to have a bonus depreciation, provided it's not a luxury auto. Now, Jared, do you think your truck is a luxury auto? In my books, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> and it's probably not. It's probably not a luxury auto. But what is the definition? It's your gross vehicle rating has to be over 6,000 pounds. Well, you go, well, I don't know what my vehicle rating is. Well, that is out there, they will tell you. Most trucks that aren't, well, how do you say this? Most trucks are gas guzzlers, probably meet that weight requirement. I had one client that actually goes, well, I was trying to be responsible and have a truck that uses uh, less gas. I said, well, unfortunately, you're below the 6,000. So what does that mean? He didn't get the deduction, the $25,000 that you get up front for that. So that he got kind of hosed on that. So the Luxury definition is defined by the weight of the vehicle. And what it can carry. That is correct. So they want vehicles that are utilized 
in, you know, a fashion that is more manufacturing or not just tooling around town. Now, I will tell you this is that we had a Rolls Royce that actually qualified because of the weight. (laughs) So they actually built it to where it went past the luxury auto rules, which was pretty funny. Wow. If if taxes aren't confusing enough, that that qualifies every dump truck as a luxury vehicle. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So, you know, that's the problem with that rule. And then the other problem is, is if you have the auto inside your company, well, guess what? If you're having it for personal use, you are going to be assessed income on the personal use of that vehicle. So it's just one of those things. When I get through explaining it to people and all the nuances, where they usually go to is they go, "Uh, my personal car, I'm just going to keep outside and I'll just charge the company cents per mile. That's going to be the easiest thing for me to do. And that's really what it comes down to. You may save slightly more money, but when you start looking at the aggravation that goes with the record keeping of everything, a lot of people will end up just doing the cents per mile and just charge their business miles to the company. Now, I don't recommend that, obviously, if you're buying a vehicle for an employee of your company. That should always be inside your company, period. What we do, and I have no indication that this is best practice, we just simply give a healthy, actually a pretty high allowance, truck allowance each month to our employees. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know how, how that gets dissected in terms of pros and cons, but that's what we do and what we've done. Really, it's one of those, we, we do it because that's what we've done for a while. And that's standard practice. That's exactly what we did too. We gave a monthly allowance, auto allowance, and then the employee gets to decide, you know, whether they're going to write off their auto expense themselves. But I will just warn you, going into 2018, that is no longer available. So I don't know if anybody's come back to you and said, hey, Jared, I don't know if you knew this, but I used to be able to itemize my truck. I can no longer do that for 2000. You probably won't hear this until 2019. (laughs) After it's too late. Yeah, after they do, they're, they're looking at it. But There's a lot of people that are upping it even more, knowing that their uh, employees are not able to deduct their actual expenses anymore against that income that's come in. That's one thing that's out there. But yeah, that's standard practice. But we're talking, too, is what the employer is willing, you as the owner of the company, how to get your money back out, too, for use of your vehicle. I highly recommend Sense Per Mile. There's so many apps out there that can track your mileage for the day. Recommend using those. Do you have a particular app that comes to the top of mind? I I really don't. It it seems like everybody kind of does their own thing and nobody said, oh, I love this app. What their biggest thing is, is I got to remember to turn it on and turn it off. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) That's, That's the biggest struggle. The other question that always shows up, we're a little past that time, is uh, 1099. Who should I be giving a 1099 to? And we should have already done that. That was due January 31st. But how a 1099, all you need to give it to is a trade who provides you labor. And that labor can also include materials, so a turnkey. So if you have your slab going in turnkey, you got to provide them a 1099. If all you're doing is purchasing materials, 
then you don't give that person a 1099. So that's really the easy guidelines to follow to make that determination. What you are supposed to do, I will tell you this, is sometimes a trade will break out materials from labor. You are supposed to do the same when providing a 1099. But I will tell you right now what the practice is, is whatever I received is what I'm, you know, the bill that I got is and what I paid is what I'm going to put on his 1099. I've never had a trade really complain about that. <laughs> and probably the reason why not is I'm the one paying the bills. I actually ran into that issue recently. And you go ahead and 1099 the trade for labor and material. And it really is, should be no skin off their back because they should have their receipts and record keeping to go ahead and expense those materials that they purchased to make it a wash on their end, correct? They should. That's absolutely correct. But if what part of it is, is if you got some people that are, you know, sole proprietors, they go around to different builders and they may just do punch out work and they're handing the receipts off to you that's going to be the person that's going to have a little bit of a problem with it. So I don't know if you've got anybody that looks like that, that does punch out work and can do it for anybody else. So that's usually where you see it, that happens. But you are correct. They should be able to just offset that. That's exactly where I ran into this recently, actually. <laughs> Was a punch out guy? Yeah, I'm doing a little remodel on, on my personal residence right now. I'm just doing some punch. That's usually who has the bigger issue. Now, I will tell you, if they tell you, I need this corrected, you are supposed to correct it. They can report you if you don't. Okay. And for the first time, you can get penalized for not doing the correction. So that's really the, the three biggies that I, I always get calls on. And like I said, the entity structure, that's the most difficult one. And that's always one when I get that call is it's a real conversation. It's not a 15-minute deal. I'm glad you're an expert in this because these things always just make my head spin. <laughs> and, and, and there's no good answer. That's the whole problem. What you have to look, it's just every person's different. What their goals are will dictate what this looks like. Well, that's great stuff. Let's move on to the next topic. So recently, we just passed some sweeping tax reform. And I, I actually haven't even taken the time yet, as I should have, to really get up to speed on how it's going to affect my business and us as builders. Can we talk about that for a second? I'd love to know your take on the new, uh, the new Tax Cuts and Job Act and how that's going to affect us. It's a sweeping law change. And for builders, actually, builders are coming out fairly well on this tax law, which is good. Because really, if you listen, what they're trying to do is bring manufacturing, you know, back to the United States. Well, we are manufacturers. That's what home builders are. So they are giving us somewhat of a break. They did take a few things away. But let's uh, talk about one thing real quick. For all those builders that are building for a customer that they know their loan is going to be over $750,000, so jumbo loan, that if they're very close and they think they can get it done by March 31st, they will be those people's heroes because they, that will allow their customer to now go to a million dollars loan and be able to deduct that interest opposed to the $750,000 loss. So those people that are close, push them through. 
so that they can have that opportunity. I don't know. Do you have anybody like that, Jared? No, right now we're focused solely on customs. So we're, we're almost all the way sold through our specs and the ones we have are less than that 750 mark. Oh, okay. But even the customs, that's what I'm talking The people that are going from the construction over to getting their uh, full-on note. Oh, okay. I understand now. Yeah. Yeah. You want to get that done. So uh, be their hero, get it done <laughs> so that they can have their financing in place. The big one that everybody was talking about was this 20% deduction. And what does that mean is if you are in the manufacturing that you are going to take your net income from that business and be able to deduct 20% off the top. That's a nice little chunk of change off. What's real interesting is who they left off that. That was accountants and attorneys. Oh, no. <laughs> Doctors. I'm yeah, sorry. yeah. Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> now, I can play in that sandbox provided that, you know, my net income is below 450K off the business. So I can still play in the sandbox, but I can't be making over 450K because once you start going over 450K, this is real important. And when I say 450K, it's your net taxable income that's on your tax return. Not how much did the business generate? So let's say the business only generated 200000 and it's just me. My husband brings in $300,000. Well, I went over that and I lost that 20% deduction. So that's what happens is you got to look at what's on your tax return to determine whether you're going to be able to play in that sandbox. Now, when I say once you get past that magical 450K, you've got to have what they call W-2 wages. And they look at that. Once, if you have enough W-2 wages, you'll still be back in that sandbox getting the 20%. Is this starting to sound really confusing? Oh, yeah. I was confused to begin with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it gets even better. So what it's coming, so what it's coming down to also is what type of entity do I have will dictate what this looks like. So again, I'm not trying to make anybody depreciation, you know, a, a tax experts today. But what I'm saying is you better get with your tax accountant now and see what you're going to look like. Because if you're an individual sole proprietor and you're making a half a million dollars on building, and, and that can happen very quickly, and you have no W-2 wages, you're not going to get this 20% deduction. You got to have, but I could simply transform you into a S corporation, give you a salary. And guess what I just did? I created wages. Now I can go play in that sandbox again and start working on getting that 20% deduction. Same scenario, different entity structure. One gets the deduction and one doesn't. So it's really important that you're getting ahead of this is what I'm saying. Get with your tax accountant, get ahead of it. You may even talk to your tax accountant, may still not walk out understanding what's going on, but your tax accountant better <laughs> and better help you decide because right now you can make that S election effective January 1, 2018, provided you do it by March 15th. 
this is kind of the problem that's going on. We're staying in the middle of what we call our busy season, but there's still people that we've got to get to to start working on tax planning for this new bill for 2018. Make a call, even though they're busy. The other thing that happened is if you're a builder and your gross receipts are over $10 million, you're supposed to capitalize your superintendent's overhead. Now, some people are already doing that. And other costs into your construction costs. What does that mean? It means I'm looking at the number of jobs I've produced during the year. I do this allocation and I may have to, even though I paid that superintendent $60,000, $70,000 for the year, I can only expense $30,000 of it because the rest got capitalized into houses that are still in my inventory. Well, what they did was they said for builders, if your gross receipts for the past three years are less than 10 million, you do not have to do this extra computation. You just take your superintendents, you write them off, any other type of indirect costs, you can write those off as well. But once you get past that 10 million, now we got to do this special computation. Well, the nice thing is they just upped it to 25 million. So for most builders, that's going to be, they're smaller builders, it's never, it's not going to be a concern any longer. And I know, and you do too, I mean, the price value of homes now, you get to $10 million real quick, depending on the market that you're sitting in. So that was one that was nice that they gave that we no longer have to think about that until you get over $25 million. And when you get over $25 million, that's that's a good chunk. It takes a little bit to get to $25 million, even with the house prices now. So how does that work? Does the overhead just get allocated to each job that's still in inventory? That's exactly how it works. And then once you sell off that house, then you get to take that expense. The nice thing is, is now you don't even have to think about it. You may not have even been thinking about it before, but now you really don't have to think about it. The last thing is that I think really goes to the builders are meals and entertainment. Now, if you have a business meal, you still get that 50% deduction. But the big thing that's off the table for builders is entertainment. And I know with us being in Texas, uh, how many hunts do you go on? Are you a hunter? I should have asked that. My two superintendents are big hunters. I've done it before. I just, I haven't found much time in the last five or six years (laughs) or 10 years, actually. Or fishermen. I'll, I'll put the fishermen there too. So if it's entertainment, there's no longer deduction for it. It's gone. Wow. Okay. Not even the 50%, 100% gone. You go to, well, we've got our Astros. (laughs) So that's gone for us if we take people to a ball game. Unfortunately, entertainment is off the, the list. You don't get any deduction for it. The other thing that's really interesting in there, and everybody's asking for clarification, is they're saying even dues to a business organization that has entertainment to it. So we think of country clubs were already off of it, gym clubs were already off of it, but let's talk about our our builders associations, okay? We have entertainment to that. Uh, they always have events that, you know, we have our chili cook-off here in Houston. I know Austin has similar events. They have washer events, what else is there? <laughs> Fishing events. So the question starting to come is, well, that's really business. Are you going to say, I don't get to deduct that? And literal reading is saying, yes, you do not get to deduct that. 
So it's going to be real interesting to see what comes out of that. The one thing is still in there is if you have a holiday Christmas party, it is still 100% deductible. Also, if you bring food into the office for everybody, still 100% deductible. And also, if you bring food out to the, you know, some people will do that. They'll bring food out for the trades or waters out to the trades. And again, 100% deductible. What about travel itself? So I'm thinking plane tickets and hotel stays and tickets to, for instance, the the Builder Show. Your travel hotel is still 100% and your meals for travel are still 50%. They did not mess with that. But you really do have to be away from home. And this is how I tell people think about it, because there are builders that say, well, I have to go from job site to job site. You know, I drive through hot dotties. I don't think you drive through hot dotties, but let's say Burger King. <laughs> and they go, well, I want to be able to deduct that. My statement is, if you had an employee and they ran through McDonald's or Burger King, would you let them to deduct it? And their answer is no. Well, either can you. So you really have to look at is, if I was an employee, would it be deductible? Am I far enough away from home? Because that's what the IRS looks at to consider a travel meal and to get that 50%. Okay. Yeah, so those are some of the things. Those are some of the highlights. That 20% one, I will tell you, everybody's trying to wrap their heads around it because my biggest concern, too, for builders is when I said they took out accountants, the lawyers, and doctors, they took out their general statement, anybody whose services is given based on their reputation do not qualify for this 20%. That's denoting factor. All right. And so the question that I said is, if you're a cost plus builder, all you're doing is collecting a fee. I'm not saying that's all you're doing. (laughs) You're building the house. It's based on your reputation or your employee's reputation. That's why you got the job. And so the question becomes, am I providing a service that is disqualified Or am I an integral part of that manufacturing process that I'm okay? And the AICPA has asked for clarification of what service means, because you can see what could happen to somebody. But if I do a a fixed price job in which I'm building it and owning the materials until I turn it over, well, I get the deduction. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. (laughs) It's like I, I could sit there and go, well, if I'm one way, I get it. If I'm another, I don't, but I'm doing the same thing. Thank God for the CPAs that know this. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing to be able to just pay somebody to help solve some of these problems for us because it truly does just make my head spin. But this is really helpful information. It's something that in all seriousness, we need to have at least a cursory understanding of. As good as you are at your job, as your clients and as the builders, we still need to have that cursory understanding because it's our business and we've got to know exactly all the different variables that are affecting it. Right. And that's really where you're asking the questions. But the real problem is you don't even know what to ask. And that's really what we're talking about today is at least write down, oh, I know there's something about this 20%. Is my structure okay? Yeah. What does it look like if it isn't this way? Those are the questions that you're asking. I've already written down like half a page of things that I need to go and and look into right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a lot more questions that we have as accountants on this new tax change. And there's going to be things that we won't know for years until they get to the court system. That's the unfortunate thing. 
Okay, well, let's change gears just a second. So I'm sure that you oftentimes see builders who come into your office and have questions or are running their business in a way that you might be surprised. Maybe there's something that you think we should know as builders that we don't. What are some of the more common uh, misunderstandings or areas in our business that we can improve that we should know? One of it is just the accounting for the different types of builds that you do. And when I say that is, you know, you've got your specs. That's easy enough. I sell the house. I recognize the gross income. But it's really these build on your lot programs and the remodel programs where you're doing a fixed price or a fixed fee or a cost plus. And those actually do look different to each other. So a a fixed price, and just make sure we all have the same terminology, is that I'm going to build your house for a million dollars. If there's any cost overruns, I'm going to eat them as the builder. So that's the fixed price. As a fixed cost, I mean, I mean, sorry about that, is a cost plus, everybody knows that one, my cost plus whatever percentage. And then a fixed fee is I'm going to build the house that you want. You're going to pay all the costs, but I'm going to charge you $100,000 to do that house. What happens is, is how we record that gross revenue and the costs. So if I have a fixed price, I need to record a million dollars, if that's what it was, of gross revenue, and then write off my costs, and let's just say it was $800,000. So you've got a 200000 profit that goes to your bottom line. Now, if it's cost plus, what should be happening there is only my plus is getting put on to my financial statement. And how different does that look? Because let's say it's the same job. I'm going to make the same 200000 but it's just a fee. So all it is is that money. I'm only showing 200000 of gross revenue. I have very little overhead that, that goes against that. So I don't have this $800,000 cost of goods sold sitting there. It just, it is completely a different looking animal. And that's the same thing if you have a fixed fee, you're just going to record the $200,000. And the question you go, well, why is that important? Well, there's tax laws that make that important. Uh, Texas franchise is one of those examples, is that in Texas, if your gross receipts are over basically, let's just say 1.1 million, it's a little more than that, 1.1 million, you got to pay Texas franchise tax. If it's below 1.1 million, you don't have to do the computation. So you see what just happened? I could have two $2 million homes, and if I'm cost plus, I'm not paying any franchise tax. If I am a fixed price, I have to go through the headache of calculating the Texas franchise tax. So that is really two different things that is going on. Also, if you're trying to, let's say you're cost plus and you're trying to do some specs, it's going to be important for your banks to understand the difference between your business. How much is sitting there at cost plus? Because you have no liability sitting on that cost plus except for collecting and warranty at the end of the day. With a fixed price, that's a little more undeterminable, and it doesn't come into income at the same time. Your fixed price doesn't come into income until you close the job out, whereas cost plus is being earned the entire time. 
So you can see there's there's a difference. Tax, your banks are all going to look at those things. So you really, your financials should be running how your business is running. So what, what you're saying, Sherry, is if you have two jobs that were in total a million dollars of of contract price and revenue, say $200,000 of that is fee. So on a fixed price method, assuming both close and let's just say we're looking at 2017. So you would have made a million dollars revenue, obviously, with the fixed price method in 2017, $200,000 of which would be uh, fee. So a million dollars of revenue, but if it was cost plus, you would only be recognizing your sales, your revenue would only show as 200,000. Right. Okay. Right. So literally a, a just a completely different world between the two in terms of how you handle taxes. Right, right. And how your your balance sheet should look because on a cost plus yes, you're you're bringing in and you're paying for expenses, but it's not your inventory. Now, how everybody does show is they show it as inventory, but as you charge out for that cost, it should be reducing your inventory. And at the end of the day, your inventory for that cost plus is going to be, you know, zero. But it's a good way to where you're always watching it, that it's not getting ahead of your customer deposit. I'd like to point out here that you guys were actually the ones that first educated me on this difference. And I'd been in the business for a long time. And I actually have had a lot of accountants and other CPAs that, didn't even know this. So I think this is not even something that's fully understood with the CPAs that are out there. Well, and I think part of the difference too is that Kurt and I have been in the business for a very, very long time. Uh, not just as CPAs, but as CFOs. So we, we've we seen this. We, we see the side that you guys live on I actually felt the pain that you guys, very similar pains <laughs> that of you that. guys did. <laughs> yeah, that goes on. So I think that's a real difference is that, and not trying to plug us, but I guess we are, uh, is that we actually understand and have lived the business. Yeah. And there's very few CPAs out there that have lived the business. So that's, I, I think that's part of the thing. And then also a lot of times they just accept the financials that show up on their desk from the builder, assuming the builder knows what they're also doing. Right. So that that's really, you know, we look at that and that's where we see, you know, the miss of what my financials really are. Because you shouldn't report all those costs of goods sold. They're really not yours. It was your customer's. Well, and I just want to reinforce this. This is something I've seen a lot of accountants not know. So I I just encourage everybody that's listening to educate yourself on this topic and visit with your CPA about it, because I think there's a good chance that a lot of CPAs that uh, our listeners are working to aren't even aware of what you just educated us on. Always happy to oblige there. The other thing that I'm not seeing is you're talking about is this fixed asset write-off. The IRS had made a determination that they too do not want to deal with small fixed assets. So they've given a buy if you make an annual election, if a single item is uh, 2,500 or less, you get to write that off. You don't have to put it through depreciation. So literally you just, if it's a computer, throw it into computer expense. Let's go one step further than that. And this is really more for our spec people that buy model home furniture. 
If your decorator breaks out that invoice by item and puts on there, you know, that sofa was $750, that table was, uh, you know, $110, you're like, well, I don't care what's my final thing. It's my total bill was $23,000 plus delivery. Well, it is important to have those each individual items because guess what I just did for you? We just wrote off $23,000 immediately as an expense. And so you don't have to track that model furniture. I can tell you at my former home builder, we had model furniture and we had it color coordinated and it just rotated around. And that's all I could care less if a lamp, well, I did care, but, you know, if a lamp got broken or missing, we just replaced that lamp. I'm not going to sit there and track that fixed asset. I'm just tracking the model colors as they go around. And that's how most builders do it. They're just tracking the model set up as a whole uh, going around to their different locations. So a lot of builders, they don't even want this on their balance sheet. They could, can I just write this off? Well, we used to not have that method. Now we've got that method that's out there. There's a lot of accountants that do not realize that you can actually do that with model furniture. Okay. I didn't know that either. That's great to know. Yeah. And it's the same concept as you have with a computer. That's what they will understand is getting this right off for computers. So that's, you know, there's another one. The other thing that's out there that I don't see a lot of times it's missed is this domestic production deduction. Now we have one more year left of it and it will be gone. So after 2017, it's no longer available. The reason it's no longer available, they've replaced it with this 20% deduction. At least that's their thought process. But what this allows you to do is if you're constructing real property in the United States, you're going to be able to take 9%, and I'm just going to say this roughly, of your net profit and deduct that. It's a freebie. 9% deduction. But you're saying this is not on top of the 20%. This is going away. That's going away. Okay. So I see this missed a lot that a lot of people don't do this. I don't think they understand it, uh, but it is a great gimme on there. If you know, But you got to be making money. I'm just going to tell you straight. I've got to be making money to get this deduction. But usually when you get these type of deductions, they want something back in return. And usually you have to reduce other costs of goods sold to get it. This is like a freebie. And it's one that if you don't have it on your return, and if you have a flow through, so I'm going to tell people where to look, Front part of the return, down at the bottom, there is a domestic production deduction. If you do not see that there or Form 8903 attached, it wasn't thought about. Form 8903. Form 8903. So what they'll want to do is go look for that on the front of their tax return down at the bottom and see if they got a deduction for it. And if they didn't, ask why. And then they might have the ability to amend the last three years tax returns. That's still open. So they can still amend 14, 15, and 16. So that, that's a, a great opportunity that's out there. The last thing that's out there, and this is really for the spec guys, is the energy credit. Not many people are taking it because uh, you have to get, jump through some hoops. You got to get certified. There is a group that will do this. But what it gives you is a $2,000 tax credit. And what does that mean? That means whatever my tax is on my tax return, I get to reduce it for this credit. Now, there's some ins and outs. 
It's not a perfect method. You could go do this study, get it done, pay for it. But if you haven't looked at it up front, whether you could get it on your return, you could find out a little bit later that uh, I just went and spent this money for the study and I can't take this deduction because I didn't make enough money to take it. So again, it's, it's out there. The service that we have used is called KPKG. They're a group out of California. There's, I believe, another group that has shown up in Texas, but I do not have their name or contact. I've never used them, so obviously, but KPKG I have. Okay. Now, you're saying this credit of $2,000 per home. For us personally, we are general contracting entity, and then if we do a spec, we'll set it up as more of a single asset LLC since we don't do a ton of them. Which entity, can a general contractor take this new home credit or would it be the actual ownership entity of the real estate? The actual ownership entity, the okay. people that have the spec. Okay. And KPKG, they are uh, the, the ones that process this credit? Well, what they do is they come out, they have to make sure that the homes qualify and there are the regulations that they have to go through. So they provide a certificate saying that, yes, it qualifies. And that's all they do. We as the tax accountant have to get it onto the tax return. They're just saying that, yes, they, they'll qualify. And also, if you ever get audit on that subject of whether the unit was supposed to qualify or not, they'll back it up. Okay. And that's what you want. If anybody comes out there and says they're going to do a study for you, the first thing you ask is, well, what happens if I get audited? What are you going to do for me? <laughs> because, I mean, it's not a cheap service. They usually charge half of the credit. Now, if you have a lot of houses, they'll do some bargaining with you. But again, you're going to get $2,000 credit, but they're going to charge you $1,000 for each house to do the study. So you got to make sure this works. But still, that's even splitting that $2,000 credit. That's still a bunch of money that a lot of us could be leaving on the table. Yes. So you just have to decide. I will tell you, most of my smaller ones have passed on it. It is really the mid to large spec guys that have gone after it. That is extremely helpful information. I, I'm embarrassed to say I, I, uh, I'm not an expert on this, but I'm not sure if I've been utilizing nearly the tax code like, uh, like I should in my business. I thought we were, but I think that uh, talking to you today has uncovered some, some areas that are ripe with opportunity. <laughs> and that's the thing. And it's... And I'm not knocking anybody else. This is a tough thing to deal with. I mean, the amount of paper that we have to look at and how big the code is. I mean, if you put the code in regs, I'm not that tall of a person, but, you know, it's coming up to my waist. I mean, it's by four. You stack those things up and the code and the regs are up to my waist. I mean, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and it's paper thin paper. It's like Bible paper. Well, I have to pontificate here for a second on a subject, just since this discussion's bringing it up in my mind. As builders, as much as probably any other businessman, we understand the value of paying for an expert in what they do, whether that expert be a trim carpenter or whatever. Or if we don't, at some point in our career, we will learn that value through probably some hard-earned lessons. But the value of having an expert with all of the people we surround ourselves with on our team is so critical. And I've learned over the years that there are a lot of CPAs out there 
There aren't a lot of CPAs that are experts with construction and, and even more specifically home building. And I think that if you're not working with a CPA who is an expert, I'm not saying they have to work with your firm. There are probably other other firms that are out there, but whether it's with you all or with somebody who is an expert uh, home builder accountant, I think we all are going to save so much more money. And since I've gotten to know you and Kurt over the last few months, that's become really so much more apparent and evident to me is the value of having that expert CPA as well. We are on to our last question. What do you see as the criteria upon which we as builders should be selecting and utilizing our tax accountants? Really, what you should be looking for is a tax accountant, like you were saying, that specializes in the industry and in the real estate industry, but and has a passion for it. Because there's a lot to learn as a tax accountant, and you got to have a passion to go seek out this stuff and be interested in reading it to be able to help you all. And then also that that person's interested in what your growth is going to be looking like. They need to know what's going with you for the next five years. They should be asking those questions. And then also have it set up to where there's an easy way for you guys to exchange information. What we don't like is, or what we hear is that, oh, I don't want to call you because I'm afraid you're going to charge me. Because a lot of accountants charge by the hours, just like attorneys. But really, if you've got a good structure, you could do a flat fee that allows your client to call you whenever they're in the middle of a situation that needs to be. Some is, you know, should I buy this car? Should I lease the car? I'm looking to go into this new deal and I'm going to have a partner that comes in. What does this look like? I want to be able to have my, you know, my builders call me with those questions because I can't help them down the road if we're, you know, six months after that and I'm looking at filing the tax return. So you really want a tax accountant that is proactive with you. Also, one that maybe when they see something that shows up that affects you, they reach out to you. We do that, too. We'll reach out to our, our clients. Now, we always ask them, you know, do you want to be on our mailing list? But we do very little of that mailing. We don't want to barrage. I know you guys get, you know, how many emails, texts you guys get in a day? I mean, hundreds. Right. And you don't need to be coming through. So we really cater and specify what emails need to go out to our customers uh, to make sure they're, you know, relevant to you. And that's what the tax accountant that they're looking for should also be doing for them. And one thing that you guys did when I first started talking to you all, which I really appreciate, is you guys went through a, a real detailed understanding of who I am, what my business is all about, what my growth objectives are, a real detailed interview, more or less. I had not had an accountant or a CPA do that in the past. And, and I think that an accountant who takes a really holistic approach is going to be one that's going to be a lot better suited to really think strategically on your behalf as a builder to find the, all those loopholes, all the money that we're leaving on the table, as we mentioned earlier, all of those kinds of things, I think can really only be fully captured if somebody really understands your business and where you're going. Absolutely. And that's what we do with all our new clients. Like you said, it was rigorous. It's like, well, because we want to also make sure that 
you understand your business and where you're going. Because sometimes that's the first time somebody's thought about it. You know, they, they're so busy doing, as they say, working in their business instead of working on their business. For somebody to step back and say, well, where do you think you're going to be five years from now? What do you think you're going to look like five years from now? So that's very important for us to understand that uh, and to get you into the right structure. Well, Sherry, I'm glad there are people like you and Kurt out there that are experts in this field so that I don't have to be. Well, we're glad we got builders out there. And, and, and again, congratulations. I know this is one of your aspirations and goals, provide training, get information out to builders. So congratulations for already hitting one of your goals. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's exciting to be a part of this and to help other builders grow their businesses. So hopefully we're just in the beginning getting started. I appreciate all of the time that you have taken today. I think I personally learned a lot and took a lot away from this. I'm sure that uh, our other listeners will too. So thank you for your time today. Thank you. 